Good morning. We're glad to have you here in worship this morning with us at First Christian Church. Hope you enjoyed Jazzy June. Um, it's a chance for us to uh, give the band a, a break for the month, uh, but to also sing some, some good hymns and, uh, and new songs in a different style. want to uh, let you know that we are especially glad if you're here and you're new. If you're a guest with us, we want to warmly welcome you and let you know that uh, we're glad that you're here with us. What we do here in worship today is the first of our three C's. We talk about celebrating God, cultivating growth, communicating the gospel. You can see those in the front of the worship guide. You can see it in various uh, literature of ours. It's on our website. We, we sort of emblazon it all over. And celebrate God is first in that list because it's sort of preeminent in its importance. We're here not just to, to have fun with one another, though it is that. Uh, we're not here just to, you know, learn new stuff, uh, though we do that. We're not just here to to spend an hour because we know that there's some sort of expectation about us doing this, though there is some of that as well. We are here because worship of God is the most important thing in any life. For us to worship God is to celebrate Him, to, to name anew how He has worked in our lives, and, and, and to sort of refocus our hearts and minds on the fact that God is God and, and we are not. That God is the center of the universe, the creator of all that is. And we're here to worship Him because of that. So that's, that's why we talk about celebrating God and His work in our lives. And so we're glad that you're uh, here with us for that this morning. Because it's important. It's important work that we do here to worship as the body of Christ. Let's go ahead and pray before we uh, jump in. Lord, we are the body of Christ. We bear your name. Sure, we are teachers and electricians and moms, grandparents. Sure, we are those other things that, that we do and, and, and say. There are other functions in our life. But Father, we, we bear the name Christ because you've clothed us with your Son, Jesus Christ. We are clothed in righteousness. We are new creatures. You have fashioned us after your image. And we broke that image. And so we're here, Lord, to worship, to refocus on who you are, to set aright our hearts with you, to join with others in focusing our hearts and minds and thoughts on eternal things. Lord, we believe that the word that you've sent us is a gift. It's a gift given to us to feed us and to equip us to minister to one another and to the world. So Father, we, we want to humbly come before you and under the authority of your word, asking that you would give us a clearer picture, because we've looked into your word, of the redemptive work of your hands. We ask that you would give us renewed passion for souls. We ask that you would bring into focus the purpose of our lives to make disciples who follow you with their whole heart. Lord, continue to spark in us a passion, fan into flame the passion for us to make disciples who multiply themselves in the lives of others. Father, because of our time, 
we just ask that you would continue to make of us fishers of men. So that when we leave this place, we are changed. That your Holy Spirit has, has taught us and spoken to us. Comforted us where we need it. Convicted us where we need it. So that we would be not the body of Christ here gathered, but the body of Christ scattered on, on mission for the gospel in the world because of our time today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, we got a bunch of Bible content to cover today. <laughs> We're going from Genesis 41 to 45. What was I thinking? Um, we got a lot of content to jump into here. So, uh, you know, typically I've got some cool illustration or something that sort of gives you a gist for where we're headed. Um, today is not going to be that way because we've got tons of content and we need to just jump in. And, and today is sort of part one of this week and next week, which is going to be sort of wrapping up some of the loose ends of Genesis. I'm not going to give it all away today, uh, but, but you'll be able to see in the life of Joseph and in Genesis 41 to 5, some of these loose ends in Genesis beginning to, to come together, and it will, it will hearken back to the beginning of Genesis, uh, but we're not going to give all of that out in the open today. We're going to talk a little bit about more of that next week uh, when we highlight that Genesis is really about Jesus. Genesis is really about Jesus. And so we're going to look at the work of, of God to, to, to make all of redemptive history beginning in Genesis be about the Messiah, uh, but we're going to look at that a little bit in Joseph's life today. We pick up his story at the end of chapter 40 in Genesis. At the end of chapter 40, verse 23, which I believe is page 31 in the Pew Bibles, if you need a Bible. Uh, page 31 in the Pew Bibles, we're in Genesis, the 40th chapter, verse 23. By the way, if you need a Bible and you have one from the Pew, grab it, take it, put your name in it, it's yours. Verse 23, this is where we left off last week. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now this isn't just a statement about his like geography. This isn't just a statement about where he was in, in space and time. This is, this is not just like, hey, I'm in prison. Uh, this is scripture telling us sort of where he was, I'm going to throw out a nerd word, sorry, uh, where he was existentially. Um, sort of his situation in life. This isn't just about geography. This is about in terms of where he was, his station and status in life at the time. He was, he was forgotten. Remember last week we talked about how, how Joseph very clearly knows that he's called to Genesis 128 living. He knows he's, he's called to this, this larger task of being fruitful and multiplying the glory of God. He knows that clearly, and yet here he is at the bottom of a well earlier on, and then now in prison, thinking, uh, God, <laughs> where's that redemptive history thing? Where, where's this all headed? Where, where's, where's this thing about me being fruitful and multiplying? So, so the situation is, he's in prison, He's been there for two years. He's 30 years old now. He's been in Egypt for 13 years since he was 17. And here he is unjustly thrown into prison where he's been for two years. So we pick up there in that place where Joseph is. And he knows that he's called to something, but he is unable for all practical purposes uh, to accomplish that calling without God doing something. That's the place where Joseph is at the beginning of today. So we continue his story in the next verse, chapter 41, verse 1. 
It says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Pharaoh, of course, is the king of Egypt, and he had a dream. Remember, Joseph is called the dreamer by his brothers, sort of uh, pejoratively, uh, sorry, that's another nerd word, sort of negatively. They they call him the dreamer like that's a bad thing. Um, But here he is going to interpret Pharaoh's dream just like he had for the cupbearer and the baker. So Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, verse 2, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. I'm not sure attractive is the right word there. but um, And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows, remember that phrase, ugly and thin in verses 3 and 4, we're coming back to that. The ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. Now keep in mind here that this isn't really a cartoon dream. Here's what I mean. I read this and I think to myself, it's sort of like a kid's story, like a cartoon dream. It's sort of figurative, like a kid's story. So, okay kids, here are these thin cows, you know, these thin little cows here walking, do-de-do-de-do, and, and they came across these fat cows and in one fell swoop, they just scarfed them up. You know, that's, that's kind of how I think about it when I read that the first time. <laughs> but... In, in sharp contrast, I don't think that's what Scripture is painting as a picture here. I think actually that's, that's just sort of us thinking, oh, isn't that an interesting illustration? Um, I, I think it's easy to visualize, visualize it that way, but I don't think that's what's actually implied here. Look at verse 3, where it says, ugly and thin. It describes the cows as ugly and thin. Literally in the Hebrew, it reads, evil in appearance and thin of flesh. These are like skinny, skin and bones. You can see all the innards kind of cows, pretty gaunt and, 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 and really quite gross. So these are like waif cows, I guess. So, so in verse 4, I think it means what it says. The picture isn't one of thin cows just scarfing them down whole, which is, of course, impossible physically, but they were chewing on fat cows like vultures, sort of, sort of picking them apart and dismembering them, which is a gross picture. So if you have a grotesque dream like that, as Pharaoh did, you'd wake up too. I mean, it's like when the kids come in and they've been having this nightmare. You know, Pharaoh sits up, his eyes are wide open, sort of sweating at the horror of what he's just dreamed. Now eventually he falls asleep again and and dreams a similar dream, but, but with seven ears of grain... The, the thin ears of grain that, that eat up the, the fat ears of grain. So a little background here before we move on. A, a pharaoh, of course, is just the king of Egypt. And at the time, the pharaoh is the power in all of the world. And pharaohs, uh, in their, their religious system, in their polytheistic religious system, they were thought to be gods, little g gods. They were thought to be the incarnation of God on earth, And so they believed that they lived on the edge, like they had the special knowledge of the divine realm. And so when they had a dream, their dreams were given special significance. These were sort of signals for them. At least that's how they thought about their dreams. And so these dreams come as a pair. They're parallels. They're a lot like one another with the cows and the ears of grain. They both had uh, cannibalism. They both featured the number seven And these were full of signals for Pharaoh, but he doesn't know what they mean. 
He has no clue. He can't figure it out. Uh, you know, he's supposed to because he's, you know, incarnated God. But he doesn't figure it out. So verse 8, we pick up there. It says, his spirit was troubled. He was, he was bothered. The, the sense of that term there is being like visibly, uh, emotionally uh, perturbed. He was bothered, and so he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. These were people he regularly consulted. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none. There was not one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And that's when, that's when the cupbearer remembered, oh yeah, that guy, that Hebrew guy in prison. That's when he remembered that Joseph had interpreted his own dream. And so Pharaoh sent for Joseph. Uh, the cupbearer told Pharaoh about him. And so the Pharaoh sent for Joseph. Now let me just set up a little bit about what goes on here. This is a meeting with the most powerful person on the planet, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. We pick it up at verse 14. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. In other words, Pharaoh had a problem. They wanted to answer it quickly. So, so there's, there's a sense of movement here in verse 14. The Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. You don't just, you don't just show up before Pharaoh in your prison clothes. All right? This is a big deal to, to approach the Pharaoh. Because Hebrews were sort of thought as low class. They wore beards, and they were thought of as, you know, you know, sort of scum of the earth uh, compared to the Egyptians. But the Egyptians did not. And so he had to shave and his, his clothes were changed. In other words, he was sort of Egyptianized for his, for his presentation with the Pharaoh. Joseph went from looking like a lowly prisoner to being ready to meet with the greatest power in the world. Now, I think for Joseph, this scenario here of, of going to meet the Pharaoh is sort of like going to the White House. I don't know if any of you have ever been to the White House. I have uh, driven by it. Um, <laughs> but I've not been there. But, but I've read some about what happens when you go into the White House. You, you, don't, just, you don't just go in. You know, this, is, this is the power and prestige of all of the world here. This is like going to the Pharaoh. So when we speak of going to the president, uh, those who work there at the White House know that there's this very important process of getting ready, of making sure that every visitor is aware of the prestige and the power of the office before you meet the president. So what happens is you're led down this long hallway. This long hallway with pictures of the president on either side, doing important things, signing important documents, shaking hands with world leaders, doing very powerful kinds of things. And then toward the end of the tour, before you go into the Oval Office, you, you pass this door, and, and it doesn't say what it is. It's, it's an unmarked door. And the person whispers and they say, that's the situation room. You don't get to go in, but you just have these, you know, this like special stuff goes on in there. Uh, so, so it's this sort of presentation, it's this, this fancy ordeal. Chuck Colson describes it this way. He says, the lions of the waiting room. In other words, everybody comes to the president, sure, they're, they're going to they're gonna give him what for and tell him how it's supposed to be. He says, the lions of the waiting room become the lambs of the Oval Office. 
No one ever shows hostility to the president. In fact, most forget their best rehearsed lines. In fact, he said most except the labor leaders. I don't know why, but most except the labor leaders forget their best rehearsed lines. They nod when the president speaks. Uh, and in those rare instances when they disagree, they always do so very respectfully and apologetically. But he says this, Ironically, none were more compliant than the religious leaders. Of all people, they should have been most aware of the sinful nature of man and the least overwhelmed by all of the pomp and the protocol and the power and the prestige of the office. Then he says this, But theological knowledge sometimes wilts in the face of worldly power. So how did Joseph fare? How did Joseph fare in Egypt's Oval Office? Would he wilt in the face of worldly power? Let's pick up at verse 15. It says this, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh. And it's important to note his answer, because this is where we understand how he responded. He says, it's not in me. God will give you a favorable answer. By the way, favorable here doesn't mean that the answer that Pharaoh wants. Uh, it just means that without God, it's not possible to give you an answer about your welfare, about your well-being. So that's what that means there. So Joseph says, basically, in one word in the Hebrew, that's an emphatic word. It's like a, it's like a let me just state it plainly, no kind of word. He says, it's not in me. I don't have it in me. He doesn't melt under the pressure of worldly power. His response, in fact, to Pharaoh forcefully dismisses Pharaoh's whole way of thinking about how this is supposed to go down. He is approaching the number one power in the entire world at the time and saying, my God knows the answer. You've got to catch what's going on here. Joseph has just told Pharaoh, who is considered God incarnate, little g God, that, that Ha Elohim, that, that the God, the God, capital G, would explain his dream. And so to Pharaoh's face, standing in front of the most powerful person on the planet, who is believed to have dreams that act as oracles of truth for him, to Pharaoh's face, Joseph asserted that his God, the God, Ha Elohim, was superior to and sovereign to all the gods that Pharaoh knew. (laughs) And to Pharaoh himself. So Pharaoh, instead of taking this as a personal affront, He takes interest in this Joseph character, and he takes interest in the one true God who could explain his dreams. Maybe it was just so that he would know, (laughs) but he took an interest. Notice in verses 25 to 36, Joseph responds to Pharaoh to explain the dream and to tell a plan for how to take care of what he explains in the dream. In four times in this speech, he will talk about Ha Elohim, the God, the God, not Pharaoh, who will explain the dreams and tell what's going to happen. He says this, verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. In other words, they're both the same dream, one one and the same dream. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. That's the first time uh, Elohim, God there, is used. Verse 26, 
The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. They're both the same dream. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears, the ears of grain, blighted by the east wind, are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, here's the second time, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty that and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is, here's number three and four in the same sentence, in the same phrase here. The thing is fixed by God. He's giving credit where it's due. And God will shortly bring it about. So he says, now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Hmm, I wonder who that could be. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take in one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Now, I, I don't think, by the way, that, that Joseph is sort of, you know, suggesting himself like, hmm, moi. I don't think that's going on here. Um, sort of a, you know, ingratiating moment. But it, but it did work out, surprise, surprise, uh, that, that Joseph, in the right time, at the right place, becomes the one to carry out the plan. In fact, Pharaoh says something remarkable in 37 and 38. He says, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? He recognizes something special and different about Joseph and his God that he could answer the dreams. Joseph, Pharaoh, said, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. In other words, he recognizes the power coming from God, and that's why he gives uh, Joseph responsibility. He says, verse 40, You shall be over my house. And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards... I lost my place here. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Egypt, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. So check out what's going on here. 30 minutes ago, Joseph's sitting in a jail cell without any particular plan or hope for getting out. Remember, he knows he's called to be a part of God's covenant plan to bring blessing and mercy and forgiveness and grace uh, through his people, through the offspring of, of himself to bless the world. 30 minutes ago, he's in a jail cell without any plan or hope for getting out. And now he was number two most powerful person in the largest and most powerful country on the planet. Tell me God isn't behind everything that's going on in Joseph's life. Orchestrating the events of his life for the cause of his kingdom and his glory and to fulfill Genesis 1.28 being fruitful and multiplying. Joseph's rise to power is not explicable by any other means. 
It's only explained, and Scripture is careful to put this together in the account of Joseph, explained as something that came from the hand of God. Like Romans 8.28, where it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, for the good of God, for the good of God's glory. <laughs> Not the good of what we think, by the way. So we've, we've got a lot to cover, and we just need to cover that background first before we move to where we're headed. Got a lot to cover, and not time to cover it all in depth. Uh, but it's important to see his rise to power here in Genesis 41 as the backdrop for where we're headed today and next week. It's important to see that God is orchestrating the events going on here. So, Joseph's plan that he had told to Pharaoh about gathering the grain and, and saving up for the famine uh, obviously worked. Look at verse 40, I'm sorry, 56. Look at verse 56 there. It says, When the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, Joseph is on the world stage able to carry out the good that he's called to carry out. We're beginning to see some of the big picture here for him. If Joseph hadn't been number two in all the land and hadn't foreseen to plan for the famine and hadn't interpreted Pharaoh's dreams on God's behalf, and hadn't been remembered by the cupbearer, and hadn't been imprisoned for two years, and hadn't, and hadn't, and hadn't, all the way back to being thrown into a pit. Verse 57 doesn't exist. He is not there to do what needs to be done if those things hadn't happened. There's a lot more about this, but let's move on and we'll come back to this big picture here. We don't have time to unpack it all here, but we're going to briefly hit the highlights of the next uh, three chapters, 42 to 44. Uh, in chapter 42, uh, all but one of Joseph's brothers, all but Benjamin, go to Egypt to buy grain. And as Jacob said, verse 2 is where we pick it up, as Jacob said, uh, they wanted to, to, he, he sent them to go buy grain so that we may live and not die. Again, Joseph has the resources to make sure his own family stays alive. That wouldn't have happened if, and if, and if, hadn't happened before. So, so they get to Egypt, and little do they know they're buying grain uh, from their own brother Joseph. They didn't even recognize him, but of course, Joseph recognizes them. Look at verse 7 in uh, chapter 42. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. He accused them of being spies, and, and Joseph had to test them and, and see if they were changed men. We get a glimpse into that question here about whether or not they're changed men in verse 21, where it says this, They said to one another, this is the brothers, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we, we did not listen. They're remembering back to when they first put him in the pit in the first place. And they're verbalizing this to one another, not being aware that their own brother is in the room understanding every word of it. There was a translator there, but he's understanding every word of it. And so uh, apparently this wasn't enough for Joseph. He 
wants the whole family back, the whole family back in Egypt before he reveals himself. And so he sent them back to retrieve Benjamin, the one brother who's still back there. So they return home, and then they go back to Egypt uh, with Benjamin. This is their second trip. Turn to 43:29, chapter 43, verse 29. This is their second trip back, and, and Benjamin is with them. And, and Joseph sees Benjamin, verse 29. He lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. Can you imagine? Do you know what I've been through these last 13 years? I mean, which one, which one of us would not feel this, this rage? I mean, bitterness. Just, just feeding and feeding and feeding our life for 13 years. And, and Joseph says, God, be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brothers. How many of us, 13 years of suffering, and not being a part of what we conceived as our calling in life, at least not in our minds very clearly, at least, how many of us would have compassion grow warm? Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brothers, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Long story short, in chapter 44, they, they leave again. Um, but Joseph's men, they catch up with them, and they find Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's sack. It had been planted by Joseph as a ploy to get them back uh, because he was going to demand for Jacob's return. He wanted the whole family there. But when they're confronting him, when Jake, I'm sorry, Joseph is confronting the brothers because of, of uh, the silver cup in Benjamin's sack, Look at this, chapter 45, verse 1. I think he's originally planning for them to come back with Jacob first. But it says, it says he could not control himself before all those who stood by him. That is, before all his Egyptian court and servants. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. That's everybody but the brothers. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. <laughs> so here they are. Brothers standing there accused among the magnificence of this, this castle with, with gold and, and turquoise, sort of watching in awkward silence as Pharaoh's number two wails uncontrollably in front of them. They have no idea what's going on. They still don't know it's Joseph. And then their world is rocked. Verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers. Joseph said to his brothers in their own Hebrew tongue. Ani Yosef. Haod Avikai. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? They're dumbfounded. After all of these years... They're dumbfounded. They could not answer him. They were dismayed at his presence. The last time they'd ever seen him was in a pit when their intent was to leave him to die because of their own bitterness, their own anger at the dreamer. And he reveals himself. He says to his brothers, verse 4, Come near to me, please. And they came near. 
You can imagine them, them hugging. This is reconciliation after years and years and years of ugly bitterness building up uh, in, in, in people's hearts. They have the chance for it to come together. And he says, come near to me, please. They embrace. They came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And he says this amazing phrase, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Can you imagine saying that to the very siblings who left you for dead? Who intended to kill you? Who hated you? Can you imagine that kind of forgiveness? That kind of reconciliation coming out of your mouth? For someone who designed for evil for you. Well, yeah, you can. You can if you've experienced forgiveness for sin. Can you imagine saying that? Well, yeah, I can. <laughs> Because God sent me before you to preserve life. That's the next phrase. It's the key phrase for, for this passage and, and where we're headed next week. Don't be distressed or angry for your, with, with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Circle that if you're a circler. God sent me before you to preserve life. He goes on to say, God sent me before you, this is verse 7, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the lands of Egypt. Why? For God's purpose to redeem people to himself. Sure, they got grain. <laughs> yeah, they got food. Yeah, their personal relationship with their brother who was estranged is restored. But the bigger picture of Genesis, and we're just going to do a, a smidge of this today. We're going to make it explicit next week. The whole big picture of Genesis and where it's headed as the beginning of the whole redemptive plan of scripture and of history and of your life and of my life is God sent me to preserve life. Later on in chapter 50, Joseph says something similar and it's one of the key verses in all of Genesis. Uh, verse 20 of chapter 50. Circle that, underline it, highlight it, memorize some of this phrase. Because it's a way of thinking, not just about Genesis, but about our whole lives. This is a parallel for how we think about who we are. Chapter 50, verse 20. This is Joseph speaking to his family, to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. I imagine God saying this phrase to me. I know Joseph said it, but I think of it also as something that God says to me. <laughs> as for you... You meant evil against me. Well, yeah, that's true, I did. Back in the garden with Adam and Eve. Back 
win this time in my life and actually just yesterday and I meant evil. I did. I meant evil. And it wasn't just evil against you know, people horizontally. It wasn't just evil against someone that I was upset with or vice versa. It was, it was evil against God. All sin is ultimately always an affront to God and His character. So he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. <laughs> all of the brokenness, all the suffering, all the frustration, all the ugliness that we experience that is a result of our sin against others and their sin against us and ultimately sin against God. All of that ugliness and brokenness and frustration, all of it is a result of someone intending for evil something that God can make into His purpose. Tell me that's not a crazy story. God can redeem sin actually through the lives of people like joseph and the lives of people like you and me why verse 20 to bring it about that many people should be kept alive the purpose of your life and of mine and this church and your family and every sense you own is the ultimate glory of god through the person of jesus christ to save people from sin and redeem them. So your job description is not and has never been plumber, electrician, teacher, preacher. It is child made in the image of God, participating in the plan of bringing himself. What better thing could you give your life to? That's a dream that's beyond your greatest vision or goal. And we learn it from the person of Joseph and ultimately Jesus. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have not left us to just figure things out on our own. You've given us Your Word. And we are so grateful for it because it instructs us. It tells us who we are. And Father, we're grateful for the lives of the saints who have gone before, who show us what it's like to live out faithfully Your plan of redemption. We just ask, Father, that You would continue to strengthen us and equip us for faithfulness toward the end of Your glory and Your goals. Forgive us for, for being in love with idols of self and of the world that are poor imitations of you. Infinitely less able <laughs> to please and to satisfy than you are. So Lord, we give ourselves anew to you today. We give our hearts to you afresh. And we ask that you would continue to show us the places where we have kept ourselves from you. Continue to teach and instruct us through your word, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.